Well, good morning again, church family. This morning, we're going to be back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 through 22. Before we read a few preliminary remarks, uh, the first is we are also going to be in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 22 next week. Uh, this is really just an extended introduction into this passage. We're going to cover a couple things that in my mind really has to be addressed in order for us to rightly interpret what Paul is saying here. So that's our task this morning. And then closely related to that preliminary remark is this one. Uh, every Sunday when we gather, it is my responsibility to rightly divide the word and proclaim it to you. It is your responsibility to work hard to hear and understand. Yes, we know it is by the grace of God and his Holy Spirit that his word is impressed onto us so that we're transformed by it, uh, but you have a responsibility. I'm reminding you of that responsibility this morning because we have quite a task ahead of us. Uh, again, there are not going to be a lot of stories or illustrations this morning. Not that I'm a huge story guy anyways, but we will actually be laboring together in the word to try and understand some things in order to prepare us for next week so that we can rightly interpret what Paul is trying to say to us in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 22. I know that sounds super exciting, probably the best introduction that you've ever heard to a sermon, uh, but we know that doctrine is important, don't we, church? We know that it is important to rightly understand God's word, and yet it is a labor, so I want to join with you in that together as we seek to be edified by the word of God. With that being said, we'll go ahead and read 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 22. We'll pray and we'll dive right in. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19 through 22. Do not quench the spirit. <clears throat> Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. The grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our Lord endures forever. Gracious Father, Lord, I come to you this morning asking you, as we always do week after week, humbly for your grace, uh, for the task that is ahead of us. Uh, Father, we thank you for already being here with us and giving us your word that you have met with us as we sit under the word this morning. Father, our desire is to be transformed by your word, to have our wills conformed to it. And Father, that's just not simply possible if we misunderstand or misinterpret this text. So Lord, would you help us? Would you open our eyes and ears to understand these things so that we might rightly respond? Would you help us in our weaknesses, granting us grace upon grace through the work of your Holy Spirit uh, through us individually and corporately, that we might be transformed more and more into the image of your Son, in whose name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. So, Paul warns us in this text, do not quench the Spirit by despising prophecies. And I'm adding that by despising prophecies because really there's a movement here in this text from the general 
do not quench the spirit, to the more specific, do not despise prophecies. I look forward to showing you how that's the case next week. But really, there were a couple things that were just running through my mind instantly as I began studying this text. Uh, the first thing is just the gravity of this warning. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. And I really think for us to really understand the gravity of this warning, it, it's only going to come as we better understand who the Holy Spirit is. What is at risk if we are to quench the Holy Spirit. And so I think we need to examine that. The second thing I think it would be necessary for us to ask and answer is, what is prophecy? And how might we or do we despise it? Now, two of those questions that uh, I'm going to answer this week very specifically, the other parts of those questions will have to wait until next week. So the ones I want to answer this week is, who is the Holy Spirit and what is prophecy? What does the Holy Spirit do and what is prophecy? And then I, uh, that is our task this morning. And the next two questions I'll answer next week. I want to begin, however, with who is the Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? The reality is this is a central or critical question to answer in our own day and age misunderstandings about the Holy Spirit abound in our day and age. In fact, the Holy Spirit, in my estimation at least, is easily the most misunderstood person of the Godhead. There are some who deny his personhood, that he is a distinct person, promoting what we would define as a modalistic view of the Holy Spirit, meaning that the Holy Spirit is merely an expression of God. Uh, there are some who wrongly teach and believe that the Holy Spirit is merely a reference to the power of God, that he is not a person at all. Still, there are some who do not misunderstand the person of the Holy Spirit, but then grossly misunderstand and mis misinterpret the Holy Spirit's work. So that leaves us with the question, who is the Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? Well, I'd like to give us a simple definition that I certainly pray you would believe if you are a member of this church that you would agree upon, and that is the Holy Spirit is God, the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is God, the third person of the Trinity. And I would actually like to start off by looking at some of the confessions of our early church Father in regard to their understanding of who the Holy Spirit is. So I want to look at some of these quotes. Uh, mind you, these are very, very early church fathers. So these are in creedal form. So as I said, let's labor together to try to understand some of these here. So you have Epistula as early as the mid-2nd century saying, We believe in the Father, the ruler of the universe, and in Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, in the Holy Spirit, the paraclete or the helper. Arrhenius, around the end of the second century, wrote, The church, though dispersed throughout the whole world, even to the ends of the earth, has received from the apostles and their disciples this faith. She believes in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are in them, and in one Christ Jesus, the Son of God, 
who became incarnate for our salvation, and in the Holy Spirit, who proclaimeth through the prophets the dispensations of God, and the advents, and the birth from the virgin, and the passion, and the resurrection from the dead, and the ascension into heaven, in the flesh of the beloved Christ Jesus our Lord. And then finally, the Nicene Creed, expanded in 381, and then finally adopted at the Council of Chalcedon in 451, reads this. I'll just read a portion on the Holy Spirit. It says, And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. Essentially, what they're saying is the Holy Spirit is God. He is eternal, omniscient, omnipresent. He is love justice and mercy he is good and he is sovereign all the glory and majesty of the godhead belongs as well to the holy spirit the holy spirit is worthy of praise honor and glory in other words all that could be said about god is true of the holy spirit and yet the holy spirit is a distinct person the holy spirit is not the father he is not begotten eternally the Son, nor has he been eternally begotten, but proceeded from them both. And as with every member of the Godhead, it is certainly not possible to really understand who the Holy Spirit is apart from understanding what the Holy Spirit does. And that's what I'd like to look at now. We gave you a simple definition of who is the Holy Spirit, but now I want to examine the work of the Holy Spirit. And I had a professor who used to say, uh, put your roller skates on your pins uh, because he used to go relatively fast and wanted us to write a lot of notes down. And I would encourage you, if you're a note taker, try your best to write as much of this down. Because I don't know if you remember this, but we went through a really long, long drawn out series on the Holy Spirit. I think my first year here, and I'm trying to compact everything we examined then into just a couple of small comments here. So, of course, my manuscript's available if you need help, but please try and write some of this down if you can. Let's go and examine the work of the Holy Spirit. We know that the Holy Spirit was present at creation, exercising the Father's words, bringing into existence that which didn't exist. We see the Holy Spirit present at the Exodus, dwelling in the midst of the people of Israel, providing them or giving them protection and rest. The Holy Spirit was present at the incarnation, of course, hovering as in the beginning over the womb of Mary, creating and sanctifying the flesh that would incarnate the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We see the Holy Spirit present at Jesus' earthly ministry, um, empowering Jesus. Then after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, we see the Holy Spirit then convicting the world of sin because they had denied the Lord and Savior Jesus and convicting the sin of righteousness because he has been raised and vindicated. Sinclair Ferguson said this about the Holy Spirit. He notes, the activity of the divine spirit is precisely that of extending God's presence into creation in such a way as to order and complete what has been planned in the mind of God. Both generally throughout history and specifically in redemptive history, the Holy Spirit conforms all things to the Father's will and to God's glory. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Not just in ordering 
and beautifying creation before the fall, but also in restraining sin after the fall, uh, ordering the moral life of the redeemed. Therefore, the fruit of the Holy Spirit's work is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He is our comforter and our helper. Therefore, he brings abiding joy and peace as we await the return of Christ Jesus our Lord. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. He unites us to Christ and all of Christ's benefits. So it can be actually said that we have done what Christ has accomplished. Christ has died, so we have died. Christ has been raised, so we have been raised by his spirit uniting us to him, uh, dwelling within us. He's a spirit of adoption causing us to cry out, Abba, Father. He's the spirit of truth that reveals to us the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, illuminating the hearts and minds of believers, causing us to see the truth about our own sin and our desperate need of a Savior, causing us to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. In short, if I could give you just this one sort of sentence, and this is really short, this is not all the Holy Spirit does, but I'm just giving you this one. <coughs> Excuse me. The Holy Spirit applies to God's people the accomplished work of Jesus Christ, conforming them and transforming them into his very image. I'll say that again. The Holy Spirit applies to God's people the accomplished work of Jesus Christ, conforming them and transforming them into his very image. Now think about that, just that statement, or even just all that we've said that the Holy Spirit does, and ask yourself the question, what is at risk if we corporately and individually were to quench the Spirit? What would be the risk? Well, there'd be a huge risk. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 13 says, God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. Now, I've got much more that I'd like to say about this specifically, but really for now, I, I want you to simply ponder that question this week and meditate on it. What is at risk if we are to be found guilty of quenching the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is not a text that we can take lightly. Paul is sternly warning us here, do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies. This is not a question that we can sit back and say, well, maybe it means this, but maybe it means that, but I don't really know, and in the meantime, end up quenching the Spirit. No, this is something we need to understand. And so let me just encourage you this week to meditate on what we talked about, about the Holy Spirit, who the Holy Spirit is, what does he actually do in the life of a Christian, and consider these things. Take time to do that. Now, I would like to transition, however, to, to a question which may actually even be a weightier task. I want to examine a question that is of much debate in our own day and age. And that question, of course, is our second question. What is prophecy? What is prophecy? How are we to conceive of this 
Therefore, how are we to make sure that we are not despising it? We can't possibly avoid despising something we don't even understand. How are we to conceive of prophecy? And so I'm going to give you a definition. And this is, by the way, the only definition of prophecy I find in the scriptures. You ready for it? Prophecy is the speaking of God's word given directly to the prophet that he might communicate God's truth to people. Did you get that? I'll read it again. Prophecy is the speaking of God's word given directly to the prophet that he might communicate God's truth to people. It is the message of God so that the prophet can actually say, thus says the Lord. The prophet's message is inspired. His words are the very words of God. As Peter explains it in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, knowing this First, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. They prophesied, he who prophesies speaks the very words of God. In our scripture reading in this service, Deuteronomy chapter 18, we see that there are really only two types of prophets, really referring to one. God in that context is promising that he is going to send a prophet that is going to be greater than Moses. There will be a greater prophet that's going to be given, of course, pointing towards the Lord Jesus Christ. But he then begins to answer the question that would come naturally, which is, well, how do we know that one is a true prophet? Well, if what they say comes true, then their words are the very words of God. Therefore, there are only two types of prophecies in all of the Bible. There are true prophecies and there are false prophecies. There are words given by God and there are words not given by God, but claiming to be from God because of the one is claiming to, who is claiming to be a prophet. Wayne Grudem defines prophecy this way. He says, Old Testament prophets were able to speak and write words that had absolute divine authority. They could say, thus says the Lord, and the words that followed were the very words of God. And he's not wrong in his definition at all, though it would do, he would do better if he removed the qualifier, Old Testament prophets. Prophets were able to speak and write the words that had absolute divine authority. The New Testament really does not know any other type of prophet contrary to other opinions. For example, when Agabus prophesies in Acts 21 about Paul's approaching imprisonment, he says unequivocally in Acts 21:11, "Thus says the Holy Spirit." And I know that you know this, friends, but there is no difference from saying, thus says the Holy Spirit, and thus says the Lord. These are the very words of God, Agabus claims. You could say it was Agabus all along. And yet, 
one of the things, this is the primary thing that people who claim a use of second level prophecy, this is their example that they point to is Agabus. Yet we don't find Agabus saying, well, it seems as if the Lord might be saying something like this. In fact, we don't find that anywhere in scripture. What we do find Agabus saying is, thus says the Holy Spirit. And he is identified as a prophet because prophecy is speaking or writing the very words of God. Prophecy has divine authority and you will not find an example of anything otherwise in the scriptures despite what many people claim. Therefore, given this definition of prophecy, we would conclude that prophecy in our day is no longer necessary. The gift of prophecy in our day is no longer needed. It is no longer necessary. And and I'm giving you a couple reasons for that. I want to look at the reasons why we as a church believe that. I'm just going to give you three. Uh, Although I could add some to that, I'm only going to give three because I think there's something in the Baptist faith and message about needing to have only three reasons for anything Uh, in any sermon ever preached. That's not true. But uh, I want to give you three primary reasons why we believe the gift of prophecy is no longer needed in the church today. The first is the finality of the revelation of Jesus Christ according to the scriptures. The finality of the revelation of Jesus Christ according to the scriptures. There has been a final word given in and through the Lord Jesus Christ that makes the gift of direct inspired prophecy or revelation no longer necessary by its very own nature. We see this all throughout the Bible, but specifically in Hebrews chapter 1, where the Bible tells us God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past, uh, to, uh, to the fathers by the prophets. That's how he used to speak, but he has in these last days spoken to us by his son. The finality of the testimony of the apostles and the prophets in the first century is taught all throughout the New Testament canon itself. In fact, when we studied the book of John in John 14 through 16, that upper room discourse, we saw this over and over again. Jesus promises to send his Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit might lead them into all truth. Now, many take that and apply that directly to themselves and therefore believe that prophecy continues because the Holy Spirit is going to lead you into all truth apart from the means of Scripture. But the issue here is that Jesus was speaking directly to his apostles when he promised to send the Holy Spirit to remind them of what they have seen and heard. To lead them into all truth that they might gain a fuller revelation or understanding of what they had actually witnessed in the life of Christ. That was the promise that was fulfilled. So we see in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20, Paul writing to the church uh, at Ephesus and telling them that the church having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, the very language of foundation makes it sound as if there is an end in sight. 
Again, the book of Hebrews chapter 2, we look at verse 1 and verse 4. The writer of Hebrews explains that the gospel was declared, or this great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Verse 4, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. You get the picture, right? Christ declared this great salvation to the apostles. They became the bearer of this message and God confirmed it through miracles attesting to their message so that it would be received and passed on. In fact, by the end of Paul's life in his letter to, to Timothy in 2 Timothy, there seems to be in all of that letter no concern at all for Timothy's management of received prophecies. Instead, Paul emphasizes the need for Timothy to guard and pass on the revelation that was already given with no hint of the need to expect or to weigh future revelation. So Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and in and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you. Paul continues on. He writes in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So, Timothy, you have received something from me. Uh, commit that, guard that, keep that, protect that. Uh, we see the same thing revealed from Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Uh, Peter has a similar charge to maintain the deposit of truth that has been delivered. Peter writes, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. What's his charge? Be mindful of the words which were spoken. And then also, John even talks about the finality of the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ in the letter of 1 John, verse 1 and verse 3. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Verse 3, that's which we, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. You see, the revelation that they are passing on is what they had seen, it's what they had heard, it's what they had touched. That is the message they received as they walked with Christ. The Holy Spirit coming upon them to cause them to remember and to help them understand. There is a finality here to the revelation which the very scriptures themselves testify to. So that even in Jude verse 3 we read, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. So, we should not desire, expect, or seek a different revelation other than what we have in the word of God. But let me take that a step further. Not only is the finality of the revelation revealed in the revelation itself... 
There is a sufficiency to the revelation that is revealed in the revelation itself. The sufficiency of the revelation of Jesus Christ according to the scriptures in the Bible. The scriptures also testify to their own sufficiency. To their own sufficiency. So Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. Excuse me. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul's referring to the Old Testament here. That is true. But what we can't miss is that Paul's very words are equated with the Old Testament. For instance, in Paul's letter in 1 Timothy, Paul wrote to Timothy this. He says in verse 18, uh, uh, I don't have the chapter here. Verse 18, he says, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, what's interesting is that's not Paul, but but Jesus' words are equated with the authority of the Old Testament. Paul lays them side by side. You know what the scripture says? Then he quotes Deuteronomy, and then he quotes Jesus in the book of Luke. Peter actually does the same thing with the apostle Paul. Peter, in his second letter, refers to Paul's words as scripture, putting them side by side with the Old Testament, testifying to their inscripturation, their divine authority. So that what is true of scripture that's breathed out in the Old Testament is also true of the scripture that was breathed out into life in the pens of the New Testament authors. It lacks nothing. There is nothing that you need to believe that is not contained in the pages of God's holy word. Hear me, friends. There's nothing that you need to do, that you need to avoid, that you need to think, that you need to feel, that is not explicitly stated or implied from God's holy word recorded in the 66 books that we contain in our hands right here. In this book, we have the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We have the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. We have the sure and certain testimony about the Lord Jesus Christ, the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. Here's the reality. The doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture, it is undermined by the teaching of the expectation and searching for continued additional prophecy. If the Lord continues to speak through prophets granting new revelation, then the implication is that there is something else that we need other than the word of God. Then there are de facto two canons, two rules for life and faith. Really, as as we witness in the Catholic Church, the new will always trump the old. In fact, it is so interesting to me that the same error of the Catholics is found in charismatics. They have the scriptures and the magistrate. Two canons and the magisterium trumps the scriptures since the magisterium tells the church what the scriptures mean or say. uh, But charismatics have the scriptures and they have their new revelation. It is no coincidence in both camps that you have a diminishment of the appreciation of the word. You have more or less a rule of man that supersedes the rule of God. I want you to hear what Sinclair Ferguson astutely said and how he points this out. He says, 
And I can't say it in his awesome Scottish accent, by the way. I want to be able to do that, but that would simply distract you from the brilliance of who he is. Uh, He says, new revelation, be it in the form of tradition or the golden tablets of Joseph Smith, principally undermines the sufficiency of Scripture and becomes defect the dominant factor, at least at certain points, in the canon by which individual lives. It is not, therefore, special pleasing on the part of evangelicals to claim that prophecies received by them function in an altogether different way. While it is denied that additions are being made to the canon of Scripture, it is nevertheless implied that an actual addition is being made to the canon of the living. So, not only do we have the finality of the revelation of Jesus Christ according to the Scriptures, we have the sufficiency of the revelation of Jesus Christ according to the Scriptures. And finally, I'll be brief here, the third reason why we believe that the gift of prophecy is no longer necessary for today I'll be brief, is I think we see evidence of this in church history. So let's examine just, I really don't have time to unpack all of it, but there is evidence from church history. By and large, prophecy gifts have been all but absent throughout church history. It's worth noting that when there were instances of these gifts becoming prevalent, they are almost always tied to a denial of orthodoxy. Uh, Some have argued that this absence was due to a lack of faith in the church. But given the clear biblical teaching that the Holy Spirit distributes these gifts freely and sovereignly, there's just simply not much biblical basis for that argument. Instead, what it reflects is a prideful arrogance toward the saints of old. (laughs) Listen, The Holy Spirit is no less active now than he was in the first century. The resurrected Lord sent his Holy Spirit just as he promised. Jesus empowered his apostles just as he promised. We are saved by hearing and believing their testimony just as Jesus promised. That same Spirit dwells in us. The truth is that in the Bible, Word and Spirit are never separated. People will ask, is your church spiritual? Is your church a spirit-filled church? Well, is it word-centered? That's really the question that they're asking. Is the word proclaimed? Is the word rightly divided? Is it Christ-centered? Because where the word is proclaimed and Christ is exalted, there the Holy Spirit is. So I confess with the saints of old, I believe that the Holy Spirit works mightily today as he has from the very beginning. And I believe that we are the greater works that Jesus promised the apostles. We are the fruit of their testimony and the inward miraculous working of the Holy Spirit. I believe that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Who illuminates the hearts and minds of men, women, and children so they can behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? I believe that the Holy Spirit's primary goal, in fact, is to glorify God through the revelation of Christ. To extend God's will, his character, and glory by transferring sinners from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. To order our moral lives as we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. I believe in the Holy Spirit. 
And so the question remains, what do we do with Paul's admonitions and exhortations in our passage? Well, friends, unfortunately, that answer will have to wait until next week. But I simply want to ask you to consider the things that you've heard about the Holy Spirit. Is this the person you have encountered? Uh, Have you heard the Spirit of truth unveil the Word of God to your heart? And do you believe in Him? Have you trusted your life to uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit? Are you a follower? If so, then this is the spirit of truth that is given according to the word. The question therefore remains, do you believe the Bible? True Christians believe the Bible. The Holy Spirit has given us and revealed this of God's word. So therefore, we need to ponder these questions considerably. Maybe you're listening to this this morning and you have believed that there is a new revelation that exists outside the word of God. Please, I beg you to consider how erroneous your thinking is. That cannot be the case. That you would understand that the new will always trump the old. And that it always will diminish the sufficiency of the scriptures. Haven't you noticed that in your own life? In fact, I've noticed that the more people seek newer revelation, the more they either refuse to study what the scriptures say, refuse to bow to it, submit to what the scriptures say, and the more they're dissatisfied with the word of God as the new becomes the replacement for the old. If that's the case, friends, I beg you to repent. I beg you to reconsider, and I beg you to live your life in full submission to the revelation of Jesus Christ that we have been given finally and sufficiency in, sufficiently in the word of God. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for the gift of your spirit who has sealed us, that great sanctifier of our souls, uniting us to your son, working truth into us, helping us to see the, the world as it really is, convicting us of our sin, leading us to repentance, increasing our faith in the only name under heaven by which men can be saved. Holy Spirit, we praise and worship you. We thank you. We ask that you would continue to fill us individually and corporately, that we would walk in greater obedience to the commands of God's Son. Will you increase our love, causing it to abound more and more as you teach us the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? May all honor, praise, and glory be to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. The invitation this morning is is very simple. If you proclaim to be a Christian and maybe you've misunderstood or misinterpreted some things about the Holy Spirit, I pray that you would align yourself under the true, inerrant, infallible word of God and you would see the Holy Spirit as he's portrayed and displayed to us in the Bible. Uh, If you can't, if you refuse to submit to what God's word says about the doctrine of who he is, friends, then I don't see how you could possibly continue to call yourself a follower of him. You've simply created a God in your own mind. It's, it's a reality. If this is not your authority, then something is not going. To, something that you created will be. You will bow to someone. So if you do not bow to what God has revealed to us in his word, who is it that you're bowing to? What picture of God do you have in your mind and who has created that picture of God? 
This is all we have to know who God is. And so if you don't know who God is, maybe you recognize that you've created a God of your own mind that is not in line with what his revealed word says, then friends, I would want you to hear who this God is, that he is holy, that he is sovereign, that created all things for his glory. He created man as a chief in his own image to rule under his domain, the earth, to take care of the earth. But man has rebelled and rejected against that holy and sovereign God choosing instead to go their own ways, to be God of their own life. God could have sent judgment right then and there and wiped man off the face of the earth. But instead, he had made an eternal covenant with his son that his son would come and live the life that man should have lived, where man lived the life of sin that was deserving of death and the punishment was death. Jesus came and lived a life of perfect obedience instead. He did not deserve death, and yet he took on death on Calvary's cross so that men and women who have sinned against God could be given his righteousness. He took their sin and their punishment, and he gives those who repent and trust in him the righteousness that they need in order to stand before this holy God. If you've never received that gift of salvation, if you've never repented, turned away from your sins, and trust in the finished work of the Lord Jesus on the cross, then today can be that day. Please contact myself or Pastor Justin. Reach out to someone you know is a Christian and tell them right now that you need to know the God of the Bible, the God has been revealed to you through the authority of the scriptures. And we would love to celebrate that with you. Church family, we love you. We pray that you all have a wonderful week. Um, go and be blessed.